Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1711. Today we're going on a very, very special journey, 35,000 mile solo adventure around the world in an old BMW. Hold on. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah! Today I'm in Surrey in the United Kingdom with a very special guest by the name of Elspeth Beard. Elspeth, welcome to Cars Yeah, my friend. Do you have your helmet on, and are you ready for a fun ride? I certainly am. All right. Well, you listeners will understand why I changed up my intro a little bit here in just a minute. But Elspeth, first thing I want to ask you is, is there one little thing that maybe most people don't know about you? Uh, <laughs> well, this is, um, I've been actually racking my brain all week trying to think of something. And to be quite honest, I'm the kind of person I, I uh, you know, I'm very open and I am what I am and, and, and I... You know, I very much wear my heart on my sleeve. And if you if you read uh, my uh, book, which I've recently written, uh, which is about my round the world bike trip, you will see it's a very honest and, and open book. So I have to say, I couldn't actually think of anything. That, <laughs> well, that's okay. That people don't know about me already. <laughs> well, it's all on your sleeve, as we say. So I think that's fine. Well, let me give you a proper introduction. We're going to dive into an amazing story that Elspeth has shared in her book, her your first book, right? It's my first book, yes. Well, congratulations. It's amazing. 300 pages of an incredible journey. So here we go. Elspeth Beard is a motorcyclist and award-winning architect. In 1982, at the age of just 23, Elspeth Beard left London and set off on a 35,000-mile solo adventure around the world. And she did it on a 1974 BMW R66. And that became a bit of a record. She's the first British woman to motorcycle around the world. Elspeth rode through post-revolutionary Iran during the war with Iraq, survived life-threatening illnesses, numerous accidents. She witnessed civil uprising that forced her to fake documents, and she fended off physical threats, sexual attacks, biker gangs, and corrupt police, who were absolutely convinced that she was trafficking drugs from the back of her motorcycle. And she fell in and out of love three times during this incredible journey. Today, while practicing architecture, she specializes in remodeling and converting unusual old buildings. Elspeth still enjoys riding her unique collection of motorcycles, including that one she took around the world. We'll be back in just a minute to talk more with this incredible woman about an incredible journey. But first, a word from our valued sponsors. They make the show possible, so keep your helmet on. We're in for a fun ride today. You've heard me talk about Covercraft here on Cars Yeah since I began bringing you inspiring automotive enthusiasts over six years ago. Covercraft is a company I've trusted to protect my vehicles since I was in high school. But did you know they've been in business longer than that? Covercraft was founded in 1965. You don't stay in business for over 55 years without providing your customers with superior quality, innovative solutions, and a massive breadth of selections and categories when it comes to protection. Their custom-fit car covers are just the start. Covercraft offers covers for cars, trucks, ATVs, boats, outdoor furniture, seats, trunk, floors, 
dashes, masks for the front of your rides, and a whole lot more. And here's something special just for you from me. Use the code yeah 120 at Covercraft.com and you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Simply use the code yeah 120 that's Y-E-A-H-120 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. American Collectors Insurance. That's who now protects my Porsche Turbo. The one I call my orange crush. They've been protecting vehicles since 1976. With all the time, effort, and money you've put into your classic vehicles, do you know how much you would receive if yours was stolen, damaged, or totaled in an accident or a fire? Your regular auto insurance carriers won't tell you until after the claim, and more than likely, you'll be in for a rude awakening. With an agreed value policy from American Collectors Insurance, you'll be paid your vehicle's full agreed value. No surprises. So don't just hope for a fair claim settlement. Be certain and know exactly what you'll get with an agreed value policy. I shopped around and decided to protect my car with American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 866- 224-9324 and protect the ones you love. Tell them Mark Green at Cars Yeah sent you. That's American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors, folks just like you and me. All right, Elspeth. Now, I have to start by saying I always uh, I've struggled a little bit with your name, Elspeth, which is very, very unique. Where does that come from? Uh, well, Elspeth is actually the Scottish version of Elizabeth. Wonderful. There you go. So you go a little south, you become the Queen of England. Uh, if That's you, right. If you go north, you jump on a motorcycle and trek around the world. Very cool. <laughs> well, listen, I would like to start by asking you for a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in your life. I like to say it's a great way to get the motorcycle wheels spinning, in your case here a little bit. So, Elspeth, twist the wrist. Well, hmm. Uh, what I would say. Well, I have several um, things actually, which I um, which I use in my life. And one of the sayings that I I have is never give up. Hmm. And I think <laughs> you you have to completely believe in yourself and and what it is that you're trying to do. Yeah. And you know, you will always get so many people will tell you it can't be done. It's not possible. And so you have to have 100% in yourself that you are doing the right thing and you will succeed. And if you never give up and you persevere, you will always get there. Absolutely. And you did that. Boy, did you do that in a big way. I mean, this is absolutely incredible, this book. As I mentioned earlier, it's 300 pages and it's a book about a journey that this lady set off on that most people, I'm guessing many of your friends and family said, what on earth are you doing? All my friends and family, um, uh, they, everybody said, you know, it can't be done. You'll be back in three months. It's not possible. I remember before I left, I wrote to some of the bike press magazines to see if they would be interested in me sending stories back. They all just laughed at me. I was just a kind of joke. I could never do it. You know, and this is what I mean. You have to believe in yourself that you that in what you're doing. Um, yeah. Well, let's start with this. Start with the why. 
Why did Elspeth decide to get on an old BMW motorcycle? Maybe not that old back then, but a BMW motorcycle, I kind of get that. Very robust, probably a great choice for a very long ride like you took, and a bit comfortable, maybe. We'll find out about that. <laughs> but, but what's the why behind you deciding to do this adventure? I mean, I get it with being a young person, but my goodness, I, I mean, my hat's off to you for deciding to do this. But what was your why? Well, it wasn't a simple, uh, it's like all these things, it's never a simple uh, reason. It was basically, I started riding bikes when I was about uh, seven, well, 16. I got my first motorbike when I was 17, which was just a little Yamaha 100cc bike. Uh, It was fantastic for getting around London. I lived in central London uh, when I was growing up and it was just a fantastic way to get around London it was cheap it was efficient and I didn't honestly think of uh, motorbikes or that motorbikes would become a sort of important part of my life at all it was just it was just as I said easy way easy transport and then I think after a year after that I bought my 250 and then a year after that I bought my BMW and so I'd I'd been riding bikes for five or six years, mm. and at this, and during this time, I was also doing my first three years architecture. And when I was at uni, I met and fell in love with this with this guy, and um, and he sort of finished our relationship uh, about uh, three months before uh, before our finals. And as a consequence, I was uh, I did really badly in my. Uh, in my exams and I got a really really lousy degree so in the summer of 82 I I, I, as I say I had a lousy degree I was questioning whether I should carry on to do architecture or not and I was feeling really miserable and broken-hearted and depressed and I just needed to get away I just needed to sort of escape Mm -hmm. and I mean I know sort of riding a bike around the world (laughs) that's quite an escape boy (laughs) when you decide to go somewhere and escape you really do it the, the real way don't you well, I kind of knew that, that that going off on holiday for two weeks wasn't wasn't going to do it. You know, I I needed a real distraction, and and I also I was at this sort of crossroads in my life, I suppose. You know, the alternative was hanging around London trying to get a job as a sort of architect's assistant, and I just and I just didn't fancy doing that at all. And in the early eighties in the UK, Margaret Thatcher had just come in and unemployment was was, you know, a huge amount of unemployment. So it was really hard to get jobs anyway. So I knew whatever job I was going to get was going to be really awful and really boring and really badly paid. And I just thought, well, I don't want to do that. I don't even know whether I want to do architecture anymore. So let's just go and see the world. And I've had this kind of slightly mad idea of riding my bike or trying to ride my bike around the world. Because in those days, obviously, there was no internet or or, cell phones, phones, nothing, nothing at all. And the world wasn't, you know, as a connected a place as it is now and there were countries you couldn't even find out about you couldn't get maps for them so the world seemed like a much much bigger place and it was really venturing out into the sort of unknown and so I didn't even know it was possible whether it was possible to ride a bike around the world but anyway (laughs) I'd I'd got this slightly mad kind of thought oh I wonder if I could ride my bike around the world and that was so that was sort of uh, you know in the back of my mind for 
probably about a year. And I think all these events that happened to me in the summer of 82, it just brought it all to a head, really. And I thought, right, well, now's the time to do it. Let's just do it. And also, I suppose it was the kind of thing that once I'd kind of said I was going to do it, it was quite hard for me to, <laughs> to retract Yeah, to back it. out. Yeah, because people say, out. well, we told you so. You can't do exactly. that. Exactly. You can't do that. And then, and then so I, I kind of, in a strange way, found myself just doing it because, yeah. A, I had nothing else to do. And I, anyway, so, yeah, so that's how I, I came to, so, so I, I then worked in a pub because I didn't have any money. I'd been a student for three years. So then I got a job in a, uh, you know, behind a bar. And I worked in a pub for about three and a half or four months. Uh, and I saved two and a half thousand pounds, which wasn't a lot of money, but I was but I hoped that was enough to get me to uh, somewhere along the route where I could earn some more money and carry on. I mean, I didn't plan the whole trip. I mean, there was no way you could plan the whole trip. You just had to plan it in, like bit by bit by bit. So I, I saved up as much as I could. And then in October 1982, I shipped my bike to New York and I flew myself over there. And that's where I started. And that's where it all began. Well, I was saying, you know, you came up with the concept of just do it about six years before Nike did. I think their their famous commercial came out in 88. If I recall right, it was about an 80 year old runner named Walt Stack. Just do it. Uh, which, of course, now has become an iconic slogan for Nike and for a lot of people of just saying, what the heck, I'm just going to do it. I mean, I have to try it. So again, my hat's off to you. This is an amazing trick. Do you think there was a sense of, of even naiveness, not really knowing what you were getting yourself into? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if I had, uh, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I mean, I think there was definitely youth and, 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 uh, you know, helped in, in, mm -hmm. I mean, I sort of felt invincible, you know, <laughs> I was, I, I could do anything, I could take anything on and yeah. nothing. So definitely that helped. And I think it's a natural thing. As you get older, you, you start to think about all the things that could that go, can wrong. go wrong. Um, right. But when you're young, you don't think like that, you right. know, it's like, you know, life's an adventure. That's the way that I looked at it. You're not held down by, let's say, a career, a mortgage, children, things that you become more and more responsible for that you feel I need to take care of these things. I'll tell you, that's what led to me to stop riding motorcycles is, you know, I had two little kids at home and a wife who'd left her career to stay home and raise our children. And I felt obligated to them that, you know, if I go out and get whacked, and of course, at the time I got back into bikes because I rode them when I was a kid, people had these things called cell phones and they weren't paying attention to the road. And uh, some friends of mine got whacked pretty good. So uh, that's what led to that. I think I need to leave out, live out in the English countryside to enjoy a motorcycle. Although here in the countryside, you got to watch for deer, but that's another story. Well, I always want to ask my guests, and I do ask my guests about a challenge. Now, you outlined incredible challenges. I alluded to just a few in your introduction. It was amazing. As I was getting into reading your book, actually last night, I'd gotten up to the part where you're in the U.S. and some very unruly and terrible biker gang guys kind of came up on you on the road and were surrounding you, but the mighty BMW took you to safety, <laughs> which I thought was a great, a great part of the story. But let's talk about this. Maybe talk about a couple real challenges you face. And the first thing that comes to my mind, especially having a daughter, and being concerned for her 
is traveling in foreign countries where perhaps uh, rules and laws are a little bit lax, let's say, compared to the United States or the United Kingdom, paying off people, border guards, faking papers, uh, not to mention you're a woman and how you're treated and so forth. So talk about a couple of, let's say, some extreme challenges that you had no idea you were going to face, but you did. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the main challenges on the road was, and also my main fears when I was traveling uh, alone, was having an accident and, and, and being injured. And you are completely in the hands of whoever finds you. And I think so that was always a worry. Um, and being ill, uh, I was always, uh, that, that I found challenging because, I th- because both of those both of those events are things where you where you kind of lose control. Yes. So I never I never had an issue with dealing with border guards or patrols or or, or language or, or whatever because I felt I was in control. I, I could control the situation to a point, obviously. But when you're but when you get swiped off uh, and you're in the middle of India or, or or Southeast Asia and you're entirely on your own, and you have to remember in those days there is no safety net whatsoever. Right. I couldn't I couldn't go to my mobile phone and and phone some up and get help I was completely and utterly alone you know and I would have to depend upon you know the next car or the next truck that came along if I was still conscious to you know to help me to you know to put me on the back of the truck or or load my bike or get me to hospital and so you're very reliant on the locals and so I think it was situations where I wasn't in control anymore that that I that I found the most challenging and it was similarly when you're ill I mean I got terribly ill when I was traveling around because in those days you couldn't buy buy you know water you you had to just drink out of um you know, yeah. rivers and street. I mean, it was just so different. And so I got terribly ill. And, you know, lying in a tent or lying in a hotel or, or, a, or a hostel with, with, you know, with hepatitis or and you're all alone. You've got nobody to go out and get food for you or water or, or anything. And I think it was those situations I found the challenging oh my ones. Gosh. And, I, and I really yeah. and I really had to, to, you know, to find some real strength to uh, keep going, and then after you're, you know, recovered from your illness or you're recovered from your accident, you've then got to muster the energy to fix your motorbike and obviously heal yourself, and then you've got to get back on the bike again, and then you've got to carry on with the journey. So it was those times that I found the most, you know, the hardest times. Ah, oh, I, I can't even imagine. Cannot even imagine. Now, I assume this goes back to your original mantra, never give up. Uh, I have to ask the question, were there times during this journey you about threw in the towel? I, I had my first big accident when I was in the outback in Australia. And I rode across America, went to New Zealand and got to Australia. And when I arrived in Australia, I was completely broke. I'd, t- I'd completely run out of money. So I worked in Sydney for about eight months. And then I and then I spent three and a half months riding around Australia. And so from Sydney, I, I traveled up north, up to Queensland. And I was riding in the outback. And you have to remember, I had never ridden on dirt roads before mm, mm-hmm. you know so these are my first dirt roads yeah, <laughs> i've ever ridden yeah. i think i'll just and go was- right across this place called australia first time <laughs> on a dirt road oh that sounds like fun 
<laughs> so I was in the middle of it. I was in the outback. And I anyway, I, I went into this big pothole. I cartwheeled my bike. I landed on my head. Yeah. All the front of my bike was all twisted and bent. I ended up uh, uh, spending two weeks in hospital. Oh, my gosh. But I was very fortunate because two days before my accident, I had actually met up with this other motorcyclist. Uh, well, there were these two guys on a motorbike. And uh, so they were riding about half a mile behind me oh and, okay and so i was incredibly lucky because we really were in the middle of nowhere the ambulance had to come nearly uh, 189 miles to pick me up oh my gosh so oh. it really was and then my bike was taken to a farm and tom was great he took my and you in came with me to the hospital so i was incredibly lucky i mean had i had i not been with them or right. they had not been just laid there me, and died yeah. i i would have i would have died Oh my because gosh. nobody else would have come along. And that's what I mean in, in the difference of traveling then as to the way people travel now and, you know, and all the safety nets that they right. have now. Oh, just yeah. didn't exist then. And, and that's kind of, I, I, it makes you think about what, what you're doing in a very... <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what did you learn about yourself, Elspeth, on this journey? Oh, I learned so much about myself. I think I think one of the main things I learned was that actually I could deal and cope with anything. Mm -hmm. There really wasn't anything. By the end of the trip, there wasn't anything that anybody could throw at me that I couldn't deal with or cope with. You know, I never saw anything as a problem. Wow. Um, you know, it was just, you know, I just saw it as a challenge mm -hmm. it was something to to deal with or overcome or find a way around because that's the sort of mentality uh, and the mindset that you have to have when i was on my journey you know you couldn't i mean if you if you got to a border and they said no you know what are you going to do just sit there and wait forever so right. you know you have to find another border you have to wait till that particular border guard has you know is gone home. Gone, off, <laughs> yeah. gone home and you and 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 try another one and so you just you you just learn to um you know to think you know laterally i think mm -hmm. that's the other thing you know you think out of the box you think of all different ways uh, to get around things to deal with things and you you realize you will always find a way there's mm -hmm. always a way to deal with every single problem nothing is is and and that's what i learned and i think that's what i've i've taken throughout my life in in all my work in all the projects i've i've done i mean after i got back from the trip i went back and finished off my architecture and then in 1988 i bought this uh, 130 foot high victorian water tower that was completely hadn't been used by the water board for uh, uh, about 30 years and you know it didn't have planning permission it, it was a historic building so you needed special consents in order to convert it and nobody in the UK had ever turned the water tower into a house wow and so everybody told me you couldn't do it. <laughs> you can't do it. It yeah. won't be possible. You won't get the permissions. Blah, blah, blah. And everybody told me. Anyway, so I, I ignored all of that. Of course and you I did. Course, <laughs> of course I did. And I bought it anywhere at risk. It was a huge risk. And then I spent the next year and a half fighting all the local councils and the authorities. And I had to go to appeal. And I finally I won on appeal after a year and a half. And then, started, <laughs> and then I started. And then I started. Then I started the huge task of, um, you know, of, of doing all, all the building work on the tower, which took me seven years of my life. Just, oh, my gosh. Just, 
the, 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 so that was a massive challenge. That was another. Wow. But you see, I don't think without the challenge that I had um, done of doing my round the world bike trip, I'm not sure I would have had the confidence to and the right mindset to take on something like the water tower. No kidding. What a one. Oh, this is so inspiring. I would assume then your message, especially to young people, but anybody at any point in their life, is that you can do almost anything, if not anything, if you put your mind to it. I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful way for you to start your life as an adult. Uh, and no doubt, as we hear the water tower story, has taken you to great heights and many things. This is so great. Well, let's take a short break. When we come back, I'm going to dive into a little bit of your past, your passion for motorcycles and things like that. And certainly we'll bring up probably a couple more little stories about your journey. So keep a seat. We'll be right back. What a cool, cool lady we've got here on Garcia today. We'll be right back. So what do you do after running a race team for 27 years with over 100 podiums, multiple Daytona wins, and a win at Le Mans? Racer and the Racers Group team owner, Kevin Buckler, founded Adobe Road Winery. Located in Petaluma, California, he and his team have created a winning combination with the Racing Series, these are four ultra-premium red wine blends that are in a class of their own. Like racing, these wines comprise of art, precision, engineering, science, wrapped in a whole lot of fun. You can choose from four blends, titled Redline, Apex, Shift, and the 24. Today I'm going to tell you about Apex. It's a rich and complex blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, and Cabernet Franc. This blend is a showcase of perfection and hits the apex with its full-bodied smooth finish. An added very cool option is the label. It's a multi-dimensional rumble strip apex reminiscent of turn four at Laguna Seca. The racing series is a spectacular gift for the automotive enthusiast in your life and I've got a deal for you. If you use the code CARSYEAH, all one word in all caps, at checkout, you get $10 off any purchase of the wines from the racing series. Your wine ships promptly and arrives quickly. Use the code CARSYA at checkout for $10 off your purchase today. There's always a seat at the table for excellence with the racing series. Go to adoberoadwines.com today and use the code CARSYA. <coughs> Cheers! Let's step away from the conversation and talk about our charity of choice here at CARSYA, America's Automotive Trust. America's Automotive Trust is a group of like-minded nonprofits that are working together to preserve and promote car culture across the country. Together, they provide scholarships and grants to aspiring technicians and restoration artists. They provide youth education programs and bring communities together through auto-related events, car shows, and drives. Among these nonprofits is TechForce Foundation, a great organization dedicated to solving the technician shortage that threatens the transportation industry today. By providing career development resources and increasing awareness and enthusiasm for the tech profession, TechForce is bringing bright young students into the auto, diesel, aviation, marine, motorcycle, motorsports, and restoration worlds. To date, they've awarded more than $10 million in scholarships and grants to tech students. And in times like these, I don't have to tell you how essential those techs are, keeping our delivery and emergency vehicles running and keeping America rolling. To learn more about TechForce or to make a donation to this cause, visit www.techforce.org. You'll be glad you did. 
So, Elspeth, we're back, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, this passion you had. You started riding motorbikes when you were younger, of course, a way to get around London and so forth. Was there a pivotal moment in your life when you realized, you know what, I'm a bit of a bike gal? It was actually buying my BMW 600. That was the, that was the change, because suddenly, when I bought my BMW, I realized the traveling potential of a motorbike. You know, I suddenly felt this immense sense of freedom. I could go anywhere. I could actually use this thing to travel anywhere. That's what it made me feel. And I think that freedom of just, you know, I could stop when I want. I could leave when I want. I could, it was just entirely up to me. And I think that's what I, that that was probably the, the changing. Because the bike, because the two bikes I'd had before that, you know, they were, as I said, they were small little bikes. They were just practical, you know, they were cheap and practical. But as soon as I got the BMW, I mean, that was a serious motorbike. Well, it was for me. <laughs> back in back in 1982, it was a serious motorbike. And so I think once I got the, uh, you know, the 600, I then started to travel uh, slightly further afield. So I think the first trip I did was up to Scotland. Uh, then I did a trip around Ireland. Then I ventured a little bit further and went around Europe. And then in the summer of 81, I flew out to Los Angeles and I bought an old seven, uh, an old BMW 750, really old bike. And I rode it uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast. And it was probably somewhere along that trip, I don't know, riding in Arizona or something where I had this, this crazy idea popped into my head. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could actually ride a bike around the world? <laughs> so that's kind of where that um so yeah, so I, I, yeah. Going back to your question, it was probably yeah buying my buying my BMW. No doubt. Which, well, I always ask my guests about their first special vehicle. I have a feeling that we we're already talking about that. The wonders of that BMW line, and for so long was that Boxer twin motorcycle engine that my understanding i've only ridden one once and it was a while ago makes for long distance journeys uh, actually very smooth and nice and in the case of that venture you had with some unruly biker gangs uh, in the united states the fact that you could out run them and out corner them on their big Harleys <laughs> and leave them as, as you say in your book, specs in my rearview mirror, uh, is, is pretty darn cool. So, uh, that bike, let's talk a little bit about that bike and what it meant to you. And obviously you still have it today because there's this attachment you have, this bike got you around the world. Uh, you know, it helped you survive in many cases. So uh, what are your favorite stories, memories about the R66? Um, well, I mean, the reasons, I mean, the reasons I, I mean, I am, I mean, me and my bike, I almost feel as if we're one mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, we traveled together, you know, and we, you know, and we just had each other. That was it. And, and I looked after her and she looked after me and, you know, I could never sell her at all. I mean, she really is very, very much part of me. Right. And I think, I think one of the things that I do like about the older, uh, bikes and certainly the bmws was they're incredibly easy to work on before i left on my trip i decided uh, i mean i knew i wasn't going to find bmw 
places all around the world who, I could, who could just fix my bike for me. So um, I decided to teach myself uh, as much as I could uh, about my bike. So I bought myself a Haynes manual, uh, um, just some tools. And I basically stripped uh, the bike down and rebuilt it as, as, you know, as much as Very I could. Smart. And also my bike, but when I left on my trip, my bike was already eight years old and had 45,000 miles on oh, it. Wow. So she was, so some people might say, actually, she was quite an old bike, just, <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just to start with. So I needed to work on her anyway to prepare her for the trip. So I needed to, you know, change the, the, the cables and the, and the battery and the tires and all the oils and all that kind of stuff. So I tried to change everything that I could possibly think of that I would need to do. And I knew that if anything happened and she broke down anywhere, you know, I mean, the butt stopped with me. I was going to have to fix it on the side of the road with what I had. And that was it. That's all I had. So and I knew that's what I would have to do. Well, I think it's pretty cool. Now, you you also ride uh, today. You also ride an R80 GS. And you think of those G bikes that are really made for this. I think of the adventure that you and McGregor and his pal took around the world on those. Now, they had modern bikes. They had probably a film crew. They probably had BMW technicians there to fix bikes. Your journey was was quite different. Does your bike have a name? No. No. <laughs> well, actually, actually, I used to just call her old girl, okay. which I, I don't know why uh, I would because I would talk to her all the time. Of course. When I was when we were riding or I don't know, we were trying to chug up a, a mountain pass at really high altitude and she was struggling a bit. You know, I'd sort of pat the side of her tank <laughs> and I'd say, come on, old girl, we can make it. Right. We can make it. You know, I know it probably sounds completely stupid. No, no, but, uh, no. Hey, yeah, we're, yeah. we're car people here. We get it and bike people. You know, it's that old age old. I always say if you don't, when you park your car and you walk away, if you don't look back, your car isn't special. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I do that when I get out of my collector cars. Even my regular car, when I go on a journey, I always tap her on the head and say, thank you for getting me home safe and sound again. I don't know. It's just a, a, a kind of thing. You know, I always try to crawl into my guest's head a little bit here. And I ask this question. It's a bit introspective. And I ask it this way. If you were a car, in your case, a motorcycle, what would Elspeth be? But more importantly, why? Well, I would be the bike I've got, to be honest with you. I and I know kind of figured like, that. <laughs> but I'm not going to um, call you an old girl. I won't go no, there. No, no, no. Well, thank <laughs> you. No, I mean, just simply because, I, you know, the one thing I, you know, she's, she's trustworthy. She's robust. Um, she's tough and reliable. And in a funny way, she's sort of understated. You know, she does everything really well, but doesn't make a a big fuss about it and she's a sort of quiet a quiet achiever and i suppose in many ways that's the way i see myself nice i love it well let me ask you a couple quick questions here if uh you could share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your many successes in life what would it be uh, I would say I always finish whatever I start. I kind of guess that, yeah. <laughs> Be careful what you start if you're on a journey with Elspeth because she's not quitting. You better be able to hang on and keep up. Now, when it, here's another one. If I could arrange for you to have a drink or a meal with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, or the motorcycle industry, who would it be? I would have to say it would be Robert Fulton. 
okay. who was, uh, I'm sure you know, he was a sort of American uh, inventor and, uh, you know, adventurer. And yeah. he rode for Douglas in 1932 uh, from London to Tokyo, I think. And he wrote this amazing book called One Man Caravan. And he was actually an architect as well. So, yay! Oh, and, yeah. um in his books, he does all these little, these lovely little sketches of buildings. But what I really love about his book is that it's not a, it's you know, the bike is. He sees the bike very much as a tool mm-hmm. to to get him to where he wants to get to. And in some ways, that that's what my bike was. Although I I, I, I had this fondness for her and and still do, I did see her as a tool to you know to take me where I wanted her to take me yes and he was very much the same you know he he you know he didn't in his book he doesn't talk about lots of riding bikes and all the rest of it it is very much it's a very it's a hard to explain but I, I just like his whole approach and I think to have done a trip like that in 1932 I mean oh my gosh yes just, that must have just been extraordinary yeah you know, absolutely extraordinary, you know, 40, 50 years before I did my trip to see the world then. So I'd just love to sit down and have a chat with him. No doubt, for sure. Now, when it comes to, I'll, I'll change this question up a little bit for you, motorcycle advice that someone else has ever given you, what would that be? Well, I don't think I can think of any motor, uh motorcycle advice anybody's given me other than don't do it (laughs) (laughs) other than don't do it exactly which is not really good advice for you (laughs) which wasn't good advice to me um i can't really think of well let me twist it a little bit here since we're twisting the wrist like the way i did that Uh, if you are going to give advice to someone who is going to set out on an adventure similar to yours or some any even if they're going to ride across their country or europe or the united states or australia what's the best advice you could offer them i would say don't over plan it because mm. i know now with all the technology <laughs> yeah. that is available you can plan almost every minute of every day but yeah. actually that is not the adventure mm-hmm. you know i mean uh, i mean i've you know, I'm so glad that I did my trip when I did without all the technology that people have these days. So glad. It's, I mean, to me, the, the, you know, the late 70s or in the 80s was the sort of golden age for traveling because it was the time when, you know, vehicles, motorbikes were, you know, had reached a stage where they were reasonably reliable. Mm-hmm. You know, you could actually buy a bike and you could think, right, this thing, it sh- if I look after her, if I service her, maintain her, I'm going to have to fix her numerous times, but she will get me around the world. And and so, you know, also, so the bikes had reached a stage where where they were, you could depend on them. And and the bike gear, I mean, that was still had a long way to go, but it was okay, yeah. you know. And the world was just still this this unknown, un, it felt like an unknown, uncharted uh, oh, place where you could, where, you know, you didn't, you, you didn't know what you were going to be doing in the next day or the next hour. You had no idea what was around the next corner. You, you know, <laughs> every, it was just, it was so intense and it was, it was such a fantastic way to travel. 
And I think now it's, it's it, you know, and I'm sure now if I was traveling, I'd be the same as everybody else. I'd take my GPS. I'd take me, you know, I'd go on the Internet. I'd book hotels. I'd book hostels. I'd find out where the petrol station is. I'd find out where I'm going to eat, you know, because you can. But, you know, uh, so my advice to be would be is, is literally take the minimum amount of technology that you can use in an emergency. And the rest of it, just go out there and get lost. Get lost. There's the title get for your second lost. book, Get Lost. There <laughs> you go. Well, imagine uh, Robert Fulton doing that in 32 on the technology of 1932 on top of everything else. The roads being worse and everything. So quite amazing. Now, there are great resources for us these days. You mentioned a few right there, but uh, is there a, a go-to for you that maybe is a daily go-to that you've enjoyed? Uh, nope. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Why did I, why didn't I, why am I not that surprised? Yeah. Uh, Elspeth goes, why would you bother? Just life's an adventure. Wake up every day and do what you got to do. So, uh, I think that's a pretty funny answer. I'm just going to leave that there because that's, that's, no one's ever said that. Can you believe that? After 1,711 people, no one's ever simply said, nope. <laughs> It's what I like about you, Elspeth. Well, I always ask for my guests to share a book. Uh, again, this book is Lone Rider, published by our friends at Octane Press. I'm holding a copy in my hands right now. Absolutely wonderful. I'm going to put a link to this on Elspeth's show notes page here on Cars. Yeah, you can find it with a quick, easy click to buy. Uh, you also already mentioned another great book, that uh, book by Robert Fulton. I'm going to put that on your book list. But is there maybe a third book that we could we could put here? Uh, no, nope. <laughs> you're going to say it again, aren't you? Why am I not surprised? Why am I not? That's okay. You know, we're all about promoting my guests here on Cars. Yeah. And I really want all of you. And I tell you what, this is with the holidays very near. Obviously, we're in Christmas week here. But you know what? If you're Amazon Prime, you can get it the next day uh, if you really want to. This would be a great book to give to anybody, especially a young person who's just starting out in their life. I encourage, always encourage young people, go take an adventure before you get bogged down and weighted down and anchors of all these things in life that start to anchor us down. Get a copy of this book and get lost in it. See, I told you there. I used it again. Your second book, Get Lost. <laughs> I've already got you. I'm going to be your publisher for book two here because I'm so excited about what you've written. Get your hands on Lone Rider. You're going to love it. That's all I have to say. All right, Elspeth, we are up to the checkered flag. This last question can be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you one cool collector vehicle today. Anything you want that you can park in your garage, something fun, something to maybe either jump on or climb into on a weekend ride in the beautiful English countryside. I always say there's a few rules to this game, and one of them is it's the only collector vehicle you can have. I'm certainly not going to make you get rid of your beautiful old gal motorcycle there. Uh, you get to keep that. You're a special guest here today, but I want you to pick something that you would enjoy that's not a dust collector. I don't think you have dust collectors in your life, but it's not something you can sell to uh, fund your next great adventure or your next architectural achievement. It's got to be a keeper. So what can I buy for you today? Oh, what bike or car? It could be or either. Bike. Whatever you would, whatever you, you already have the world's greatest bike. So I don't know if you. Well, know, but you I know, think if it, I think if it was a motorbike, yeah. it would be a Bruff Superior. Okay, uh, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, you should read up on them. The Bruff Superior SS100. They were, I think, they were built in the from the mid 1920s to 1940, and in a small factory up in uh, in the north of England somewhere. I can't remember exactly where. And back in, and when they first made the, and these these bikes were like the Rolls Royce of bikes. So they only made I don't know a few thousand. 
in all that time. And they were incredibly expensive. And they literally, they built these bikes twice. So they would assemble the whole bike, then they would take it all apart again, and then they then they would paint or or finish or coat every single part of the bike and then they would reassemble it again and they are the most beautiful works of art and this bike in the 1920s did 100 miles an hour oh my gosh wow it is the most incredible incredible machine well i am going to learn a lot more about that that's spelled b-r-e-r O-U-G-H? B-R-O-U-G-H, yes. Bruff Superior. Bruff and Superior. actually, it was it was written by Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, well, T- that makes sense. <laughs> T.E. T- e. Lawrence, he yeah. wrote one. Okay. Well, yeah, I just uh, poked into uh, the world of Google here while we were talking, and oh my gosh, that is a spectacular looking. I don't know about that. I'm going to have some fun learning more. Now, if it was on the car side, what would it be? Oh, now the car, it would probably be, I, I'm a bit of a car, um, I used to have a Caterham 7, which is like the old Lotus yes, 7. Yes, I know And, I, and I, yeah. used to, I used to race those around. No yeah, way. All the, well, I didn't race them, I did these track but, races. Yeah, I got gotcha. you, yeah, driving days. Um, uh, I've also now got a Porsche 911 oh, uh, Targa. You're which a is lady about- after my own <laughs> Hard here because I love Porsches. My listeners oh. know I've had many, many Porsches over the years. Yeah, so this is a 1992. So it's like the really nice old, yeah, yes. the small car before they all got a bit big, I think, in uh-huh. my view. And I would probably, I, I'd, one of my other favorite cars is actually the DB5, Aston Martin. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> So would you would you like to have a DB5 in your garage? Is that what? I would love to have a DB5 in my okay. garage. Okay. Now here's the hard question because you've picked two spectacular British motorcycle and car. I mean, wonderful. Now since I can only buy you one because you know I, I buy a lot of stuff every week, five a week for people. I can't afford to give you two rides. <laughs> if you had to pick between the two just for today, which one would it be? It would be the Bruff Superior. I, I knew that was the answer. Yeah, it has to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll start searching. You're no cheap date, Elspeth. Holy cow. Uh, It's going to be a tough one, but uh, I'll see what I can do here. Elspeth, you have taken us on a tremendous journey here. This, we just touched the tiny top of the iceberg here. There's so much more under the water for you to get involved with here uh, with this book, Lone Rider. I've really enjoyed getting to know you better. And of course, with my father having been an architect, fun to talk to a fellow architect. You all think very differently, very creative. Would you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you ride off into the sunset in that brof? Now, how do you pronounce that? Brof? Brof? Brof. 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 Brof Superior. Brof Superior SS100. Uh, well, I would say um, don't take life too seriously. Go out, have an adventure, and get lost and never give up. I love it. I love it. Very, very wise words of wisdom from a wonderful person here. What's the best way for people to learn more about you and your architectural firm? Do you have a website? Uh, I do have a website, but I have to admit I haven't uh, updated it in about, <laughs> in about okay. twenty years. You're too well. You're too busy having adventures. I'm, Why bother I'm with too a website? Busy. Yeah, I'm too busy. Um, I don't have time for it all. So I do have a website, okay. which is just else. If if you Google Elspeth Bid Architects, and then I've got my other website, which is uh, to do with all my travels okay. and mainly my my around the world bike, tra- and that's just elspethbid.com. 
All right, great. I'll remind you, for those of us here on the other side of the pond, Elspeth is spelled E-L-S-P-E-T-H. I'll make sure I put links to these, both the travels and the architecture website, so you can enjoy, follow along. If you can keep up, good luck. You probably can't, but uh, you can try to keep up with Elspeth here through her websites. Hey, I want to thank you for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for uh, sharing some moments with me today. What a spectacular adventurous woman you are until you and i talk again if i can keep up i'll see you down the road okay thank you very much this was great fun If you're listening to Cars Yeah, you've probably spent some time working on your favorite ride. But how confident are you working on your finances? You may be able to rebuild a fuel injection system, but can you decipher the details of a mutual fund? If you're like me, investments, insurance, annuities, budgeting, and other financial concepts may seem a bit daunting. But what if I told you there's a book that describes these subjects and more in an easy-to-read and a very humorous way? My friend Chris Kimball, CFP, a longtime sponsor and past guest here on Cars Yeah, has written that book, and it's titled The Saga of Ike and Penny, a couple's humorous journey through the confusing world of finance. It's a fun look at things you need to know, everything from investing to effective ways to get rid of credit card debt, and it's probably the only book on finance with a VMAX on the front cover and a classic Mini Cooper on the back. The book's available at Amazon for just $10, and this book will dramatically improve the direction of your financial future. I gave copies to each of my children. All securities are through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Christopher Kimball Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Get your copy, The Saga of Ike and Penny, today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!